Well, Father God, we just uh, come this morning, Father, just in great, great joy. Father, it's just no uh, better place to be uh, than to be in your house, in your presence, and to be uh, in your words, to worship you. Thank you so much for uh, just for your loving kindness to us. And Lord, we just uh, today in our continued study, of, uh, for, we thank you for this great letter of encouragement. Yes, and I pray that last just to... A share and journey, Lord, that our hearts would be um, guided and to be challenged by it. Um, just do pray your spirit will lead in our discussion today, and we just all in Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, yeah, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to First uh, Peter, where we off. And as, as I was sharing earlier, is that in our outline, there is a very key turning point or a pivot point within within the, the letter of 1 Peter, and it actually is the end of 10 to 11, so I'll have the opportunity to spend a little bit more about this outline that we keep coming up with. We have shared with you this our objective, which has been continuous from week to week, comprehend precious spiritual privileges that we have in Christ so that we would grasp, cherish, and savor multifaceted glory of what it means to be called the children of It is my hope today is that we can continue even going through a, f- a few more of these uh, spiritual privileges. What I did is I took the, the passage that we've been studying in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, and Mark started off in 4 and 5, and I've been kind of working through the verses. And what I did is I highlighted for you some of the key parts of that passage that help us to focus on the spiritual privileges that are, are identified in this section of his letter. Starting uh, at the top with coming to him, we uh, went through this first section of the privilege of being able to coming to Christ and the intimacy that that brings. The union with Christ as you as living stones and we're representing actually the church and our role within the church, even the holy priesthood, the access to God and the detail that we went through and the significance of this referencing of these believers, priests. The aspect of that, this cornerstone has been uh, laid out in Zion, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Our security in Christ, the confidence that we have, this precious value, the affection that we have for Christ, this, our love for Christ, and that being the first break point. And then you can see why cannot get through the bottom portion of this uh, today. <laughs> but that was the, it's our election in Christ. Our election by Christ, which is our chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So these, this last section of privileges are election, dominion, separation, possession, and proclamation, illumination, and uh, compassion um, would be additional privileges that we have, and we want to take our time and go through each. And you, looking at this, is I think I counted 12, or 12 of these actual uh, privileges that are all within these verses, chapter 1, verses 4. Our coming to Christ, verse 4, our union with Christ, you as also as living stones, and our access to God, just by uh, the part 2, uh, focusing in on, uh, as living stones, we're making up the church, holy priesthood. Part three, last week I started with our security in Christ. And as believers, we have this confident conviction that we are secure in Jesus Christ forever. 
And the key idea that we focus on was this, this word in verse 6 that said that we will not be disappointed. This is this confidence that the precious cornerstone is Christ. He is trustworthy. And our affection last week we got through for Christ in verses 7 and 8, we found ourselves viewing this awe-inspiring privilege of having affection for our Lord, the precious value of Christ. And the love for Christ is truly a great, great privilege that we have as believers. A couple passages we looked at in Romans 5.5, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And if God were your Father, you would love me. And love me, you would keep my coming. So this takes us up to this next part of the verse. But I've got to ask you a question. Is that, tell me, give me an example of uh, when someone wrote something to you that was a great encouragement to you. So it's, a, it's something that you may even still have that letter. Um, it's really just at your heart. It just, it's right there in the front of your mind. Other examples, would we, I, I'm sure we all, we've all experienced that. You might not be able to put your finger on it. I share similar to Mark is that I actually have um, one letter of encouragement, actually, from Lori, <laughs> that uh, I actually keep in my, it's always with me, it's in like in my brief, carry it with me, and it, it's a letter I, I go back to in that, in that we get great encouragement from others, and it could be something very simple, it could be just a, uh, a text <laughs> that I got this morning saying, I'm praying for you. Those things can, those words of encouragement really are, are significant. And I want you to think about that example that Mark shared, or just sometimes that people have encouraged you or maybe you have encouraged others, that it really takes people take them to heart as we do individually. Well, I, I want to bridge that, those thoughts, because I think we've all experienced that to some degree. And Peter wrote First Peter to these scattered Christians who were experiencing difficult circumstances. And they were, they were paying the price of living out their Christian lives in that environment that was so challenging. And so, 1 Peter, his letter in verses of chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, contain in itself, in, in that section of the letter, it's like taking that as an encouragement letter. It's really, it contains the heart of the encouragement that we find in his first epistle. And the whole first epistle, if you take these, this is like some of the greatest aspects of this encouragement. And what it describes for us, you know, what we've been working through very slowly, is that it's the description of the spiritual privileges that God has given all the believers by His grace. And so, Mark, and I thank you for that sharing that, because you pour through every word of that letter of encouragement. Every word. You go back to it. And you, and you just you hold it and you just go back through it. And what I would submit is that this, for these believers, is that part of the letter that they have kept going back to from this point forward. And for you and I as believers, as when you go back to what our objective is, here it is, just, just again, this is the part, that we would comprehend the preciousness of those privileges that we have in Christ. Savoring, cherishing, grasping what it means to be called children of God. It's that letter of encouragement that you grasp it, you cherish it, you savor it. This is that section of 1 Peter that he is writing to is the same. So it is 
as by way of introduction as we go through this, that this is this focus. Peter now, in 1 Peter, if we go back there, let's read through it. And I'd like to read through the whole section again. If someone could, just by way of introduction to get us going, start reading in verse 4 through verse 10. And we're going to pick up our discussion in verse 9 today. That, please. i got to finish 10. Who once were not a people, but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. <laughs> Good news is, is that we're going to spend quite a bit of time next week on verse 10 too, as well. Peter now f- uh, focuses on the doctrine of election. By this, he starts off, you are a chosen generation. If you look at the sequencing of this, we're going to go through each of these. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And his own special people. There, if you remember back when we looked at the privileges, there they are. Election, who are chosen, royal priesthood, the standpoint of dominion, and a holy nation, separation, and then possession through his own special people. So that will be our, sort of our, our target for today. Peter ties verse 9, and let's go back to it. He says, but you are a chosen generation. He is tying verse 9 to verse 8. With a very strong but, isn't it? Whenever we see that word but, where, where do you always look? You look previously, right? In other words, you're looking for some type of contrast. It's a strong but, and it contrasts those to whom Peter had been referring to, to those who are not, he's not going to address, which are whom? The disobedient. See, in other words, He's going back up because the talk with this is they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So in that reference of that, that part of the letter is referring to those disobedient, those that would be stumbled and that they would be it would be subject to that judgment, the rock of offense. So in contrast, he is saying to the ones he's addressing are believers now. It's like it's like restating says, unlike those who are like destined for destruction because of their unbelief, you, on the other hand, are a chosen race. Now, the translation of race is referring to a source of persons that it's describing. So Peter emphasizes that these Christians are literally a race, and that this race is produced by a divine source. Race are produced by a divine source. Now, when you look at, throughout 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, we've been talking about this last two weeks, that in these verses, he makes, Peter makes extensive use of the Old Testament, doesn't he? He alludes to it in verses 4 to 5, that was that Mick read, and he makes direct quotations in verses 6 and 8. Now in verse 9, he doesn't quote it exactly, but he alludes to it. He alludes to, actually, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verses 6 to 9. Because we, we turn there. Let's go back to that. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. Someone is there, would like to read that. That would be great. Reading always engages you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 9. Thank you. In this, clearly it's speaking of who? What? Israel. Clearly of Israel. Peter now, so you go back to that and you look at it. Peter is viewing... You go back here, he says that, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
Peter is viewing the church as the redeemed community of God. Chosen just like Israel was chosen. Now, in Isaiah 43, verse 21, um, we have a similar affirmation regarding Israel. Let me read that to you. This is Isaiah 43, verse 21. I have it. It says, The people I have formed for myself, I shall declare my praise. God identified Israel as His chosen people, and it's, it's a designation that they have retained throughout centuries. Now, back in 1 Peter 2.9, he tells that there is another chosen race, and that is the church. The church, in 1 Peter, if you go back to the first beginning of how this letter started, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 explains that the church was chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. This is going back to how it starts. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. God's choice of believers is our most important privilege. Why? Out of all of the privileges that we've been focusing on, why make this statement that God's choice of believers... (laughs) Betty? All the other privileges come as a result of His choice. Nailed it. All of the other privileges that we are focusing on come as a result of His choice. If you are a Christian, you should celebrate the privileges of being chosen by God. Now, Scripture repeatedly affirms the great truth of election. And on the, the way I want to go through this, John, I'll go through, the, I can read, some of, read these passages and for example, this is how I'll display them for easier for your notes. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. So for the purpose of keeping your, getting your notes going, you can highlight, for example, what I have in blue there. That helps you in that, as a key part of that verse that again focuses on these truths of election that we see in Scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard that the gospel applied to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God appointed them to eternal life and they believed. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. The appointment to eternal life specifically points to God's choosing, His election. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. You were called into fellowship. Ephesians 1.5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, foundation of the world. It goes on to say, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Just as He chose us in Him, destined us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Likewise, He said, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God has chosen you for salvation from the beginning. 
finally, 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Scripture is full of affirmations of the great truths. God's election, His choosing of His own. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people God's own position. Christians are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. What does that mean? What does foreknowledge mean? Put up a, just a, a note here to see if this will help us. A predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God. If you look back at the beginning of this again, is that we see that this was referenced again at the beginning of chapter 1. Where it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It can be translated foreordained. Now, just for by way of clarification in that, how, how does that work? Is... Uh, is God choosing? Is God choosing anyone because of what he or she did or will do? Correct. He sovereignly sovereignly determines, right, to set his love on us for divine reasons that we don't really understand. It's a reference to to God's deliberate choice, and that is a concept that's challenging for us in our finite minds to kind of get around to it. However, Jesus. Christians are chosen in a very similar way that Jesus was. And I thought we'd kind of look at this Isaiah 42, verse 1 passage. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Someone read that. 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I withhold. Who is, he, who is it referring to? Context there. Yes, it, and what it's saying is that God's choice of the Messiah, okay? And so we, we see this clearly, it's, it's, a, it's a great example, and it's similar to what Peter meant by God's choice in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, which refers to Christ as the choice stone. So it's similar that we see here, Christ was chosen by the absolute sovereignty of God, just like you, the same way. Christians are chosen sovereignly by God. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. So, I, I wanted to take a little segue on this one, if we could, at this, at this place. Because, based on this absolute sovereignty of God, that we have of God's choosing, is let's think, if we could, about the, uh, some of the practical observations of this. And I, there's two that I, want, I wanted to look at that reinforce this. This recognition of the sovereignty of God choosing you. Okay? The first one that I come is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 1. Okay. It reads, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. What is that telling you about Jeremiah? He was chosen before he was even born. In the same way, believers are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. The, the choice essentially is activated in time when the Spirit of God prompts it in the hearts. 
of the individual. I want to tie a, a, another example to the Jeremiah passage, and that is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Who's writing in Galatians? Paul, right? Paul writes, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Similar to Paul. Paul is, is sharing this. based on the, it's, it's, it's the sovereign plan, or Jeremiah, it's the sovereign plan for Paul. It is the sovereign plan for Mark. It's the sovereign plan for Mick. You, you, you keep it going at that point. The choice itself, as us as believers, is activated in time, when the Spirit of God prompts it in the hearts of the individuals. We can point back to that particular point when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was that prompting of the Holy Spirit at that point. However, it was, again, sovereignly, that just boggles my mind. So where do I come into this? What effect does the sovereign choice of God have on man's pride? Question. Say it again. What effect does the sovereign choice of God have on man's pride? <laughs> it, it, it just it blows it away. It crushes it. I mean, it's, 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 it's humbling. Um, go uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Very common verse. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know it by heart probably. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Uh, it just blows it away. It just devastates our pride. The sovereignty of God in choosing men and women for salvation only crush the pride. And affirms... The, the doctrine here that we are totally depraved <laughs> and that we're totally dependent on God. That dependence to God is to respond in faith to Him. What else does His choosing? What else does His choosing do? This doctrine of election. Some thoughts. What else? Does that make you bold? <laughs> we'll find out in a little while. Is that the emphasis for today, I know, is on this boldness. How does, how does it? How do you? How does else does it respond? It crushes our pride. But how do you respond to that fact that God is choosing you? What else does it promote? Thankfulness. It's like a, it's a, I can't come up with the verse. I apologize on this, but uh, when the compliment the compliment verse to the fact where where Israel is chosen that. It, later on in, in the in Isaiah that it says that so that God, God would be glorified, that He would be exalted itself. So God's choosing in itself exalts Him. And from that, the response is certainly is gratitude, but it also, as it, as it, I believe, as it leads to, as we start to move on to this aspect of being separate or sanctified, is that does it not promote holiness? So as we look at this, the sovereign choice of God is choosing. It just it crushes pride, exalts God, promotes holiness, gratitude, being an ambassador for Christ, a sense of urgency, 
It gives us strength. It gives us confidence. Produces joy. Found gratitude. In contrast to plenty in our pride and recognition of our depravity. Our next spiritual privilege. Our dominion with Christ. Peter encourages his readers calling them that you are a chosen, you are an elect generation. It says a royal priesthood. I thought we already covered priesthood. I thought that was, a, in fact, isn't it on verse, verse 5? We did. I think we covered that already. But so why is he going back to this? What's different? It says royal priesthood. Believers are a royal priesthood. What is new about the idea of royal priesthood? What is different about that than what Mark covered a couple of weeks ago about just that we are a priesthood? Yeah, it, it, significantly, it's this word royal. I mean, that, that, that's going to be the difference. I mean, just very practically, you look at it, is that there's, there's a word that precedes Peter's idea of a royal priesthood. It is actually drawn from Exodus 19, verse 6. It says that you shall be in that, I'll read the verse to you, it says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to hit holy nation again. But Peter is referencing in Exodus 19.6 in both of these next two spiritual privileges. But specifically, here he is drawing this idea of this royal priesthood. Israel itself, we know, forfeited that. They forfeited that and unable to realize this dominion because of the fact that literally they executed the Messiah. But yet, Peter is referencing the present church, his readers, you and I, as this royal priesthood of God. So, what is the the office of royal priesthood? Royal priesthood of the church serves the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We not only serve the king, we also reign. Priesthood of the church serves the Lord. We know him as the King of kings and the Lord of Beyond that, there is this exercise of dominion Christ in this ruling of now I wanted to go through and spend a little bit of time in more detail on this one right here this aspect of this word royal first Peter 2 9 he speaks of this royal uh, this word royal priesthood now within the Greek itself when you look at this word royal it it has this it speaks of this meaning of like a royal place or this 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 sovereignty, or this crown, or this like this monarchy, monarchy, this this term, and so the idea is that there is it's of royalty in general. Okay, so my head quickly goes to where we've seen the Olympics. You know, and they, of course they focused on some of the the royalty, what seemed to be a word that kept coming up in just some of the, the aspects of it. Now in verse five that was covered previously, it said that you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Now, the spiritual house in verse 5, it refers to a royal house. In other words, it's not a building, but it's, in this case, the sphere of like dominion that they have there. It's like when you refer to like a royal house of something, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's a structure, a building. It refers to the dominion of that like a sphere, the sphere of rule. So Peter is describing, when he refers to this holy priesthood, he's referring to this, the current church as really being this royal house of priests. That really squares with New Testament uh, 
revelation of this. Now, there's two really interesting passages. Let's, let's go to Revelation 5, verse 10. Revelation, verse 5. Someone can read that. Okay, King, kings and priests. Now, when you go back, in this referencing here, clearly he's saying, again, that it is said of God in the church, that thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. Now, go back a couple of pages in Revelation to chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us, here it is, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Here is this, it squares completely with Revelation where he's referring to the church today as being, we are called, we are, we are a royal, royal priesthood. Uh, no, I, I appreciate that. Because two things come um, in as believers. What does you're saying? What does that future as a royal priest look like? And I, I think of the of the passage in First Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to set an example for the believers in your speech, in your life, in your love. And, and then, it, in other words, it, that's appropriate. Uh, advice for someone has the privilege of being a royal priest. So I think what you're saying, Mark, it is this living out, and we'll get to that when we start talking about separation and and holiness, but also is that when we spend eternity giving in worship and offerings to the Lord, it's also reigning with Christ. And for me it's significant because it is not like any Old Testament level priest uh-uh. It is that there is this equality, this level, right? That, that's that's huge. It's well. Let's let's let's. I mean, it's a, good, it's a great segue to, to Hebrews seven. Let's go there. Great uh, support for only person. The only person that could have established a royal house of priests is Jesus, and. Only he is both king and priest. Mark's comment earlier. Uh, the, the great verse for that is listed up here as Hebrews 7, verses 14 to 17. Hebrews 7, verses 14 to 17. It is evident that our Lord was, uh, was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which that Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of a Melchizedek, who has become such not as the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is, it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is introduced to us back in Genesis 14. He was unique. He was the only royal priest in the Old Testament, and yet I, I, I got to read Zechariah to you because Zechariah chapter six for twelve to fourteen. Let me read that to you. Zechariah six verses twelve 
Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. Council of peace shall be between both. And so Zechariah six twelve fourteen Hebrews again. Christ was a royal priest similar to Melchizedek, and it's sort of like a referred to as like a type of Christ, topology of Christ, in that he didn't he's similar, but he didn't inherit his priesthood, like what Mark was referencing by the priestly line of Levi. Rather, he came through the royal line as well of Judah. So Christ is king. Those who would believe in him will reign with him. Significant. Well, let's move on back. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Let's just start to peel back this first aspect of it. By describing the church as a holy nation, Peter is drawing on God's description of Israel. That complemented the royal priesthood that we went and looked at earlier in Exodus 19.6. And God has a new people, that's the church, and it's consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, It's the tragedy of of Israel's apostasy that became a blessing for the Gentiles. Now, I wanted to take a go back to a couple, look at a couple verses. One, let's go to Romans, and we'll close with a couple verses here. Romans chapter (coughs) eleven. Romans chapter eleven, verses seven to twelve. Someone read that seven to twelve. Israel's apostasy, blessing for the Gentiles. God has His own new unique people, church, both Jew and Gentiles. The church will remain unique until the nation of Israel, as we know, as a whole, turns to faith to the Messiah. So, what does holiness mean? See in this is that again that you, he's referring to this separation. That you are a holy, you're, so the holy nation. Holiness means that we have been set apart unto God for His service and relationship with Him. It means we've been set apart. Now, while it includes both being set apart for service, I would say that the primary emphasis is on our relationship with God. Look at Colossians 1.3. It, it's conceivable where he says he draws the wicked sinners to himself. He takes them out of darkness into light, out of a death into life, out of a kingdom of Satan, into the, the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.3. Takes us out of communion with Satan and into communion with himself. So when we see this aspect of holiness, the meaning of holiness, it means that God, we are set apart unto God for him. For a relationship with him and for service. How does he do that? The means of holiness, we are made holy by means of God's choice. You see that beginning of 1 Peter 1. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that we may obey Him. Salvation is the work of God by which we are set apart. Where I want to stop at this point, because I want to start with these verses next week, as we start to understand the types of... What, what does sanctification mean? Sanctification is this term that we're seeing of, of it being sanctified itself. Sancti- a holy nation, we are separate from what is holy and devoted to God. Salvation is the work of God which we are set apart. And so I want to stop at this point 
and so that we can pick right back up with what it means to be sanctified and looking at some of these verses in Acts, Hebrews. Look at sanctification both from a positional perspective as well as from a progressive perspective. I did not get as far as I said I would get. So draw a line on your paper so you know where I have where I've left off here. Okay, before we close in prayer, any thoughts just about today? Mick, could I ask you to close us in prayer? Thanks.